Welcome back to episode two on the Abstract Podcast. Today we're talking about Cuties, the new movie, homosexuality, extraterrestrial life, and probably a whole lot more. So it should be interesting. Um, One thing. First off, just as far as an announcement goes, we have not ever asked this before, but if you listen to this podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast, if you would rate and review us, that would be fantastic. All reviews will be read. And uh, also, if you want to contact us, like throw possible topics for shows or ideas at us, we're just open to rate us for our horrific content. Yes, you can do that too. But we just love to hear feedback. Um, yep. If you if you enjoy the podcast or you abhor the podcast, uh, <laughs> let us know, and uh, we can engage with you on that. Let's dive right in, Javen. All right, should we just take them in order? Uh, let's do it. Let's let's well, just... first. First, I think we should talk about why we didn't record last week. Oh yeah, these circumstances. Yeah. It's really good to be back here because that means that neither one of us have COVID. That is good. Last week we did not record for the past two weeks. I've actually been out of school. Um, I tested positive for COVID. Lost my sense of taste and smell. You have it back now? Yeah. Oh, thank the Lord. That's good. Yeah, really the effects weren't that bad except for losing taste and smell. And probably the most painful experience of the whole thing was getting tested. <laughs> this is true. At, at some sites, they swab your eyeball. You've been text. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tested, but like at CVS, they let you do it yourself where you just stick the little thing up your nose Ooh. and rub it around. That doesn't seem like a good idea. I guess, I don't know. It's a lot less painful, <laughs> that's for sure. But I went at the DHEC testing site in Anderson, and I was I pulled up there, and like, <laughs> I I've been tested now. I don't know a lot of times, like four, and like the first time Alicia did it for me, and it was awful. Like she put the thing up my nose and rubbed it around. And I was just like, ah, yeah. And she thought I was being over dramatic, but it was so painful. Well. Then, so I pull up to this DHEC place, and I'm like, so are you going to let me do it? She's like, nope, I'll do it for you. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> she stuck it up so far, like you said, yeah. almost to your eyeball. Yeah. It it was, I like, I had tears streaming down my face when I Same. pulled away. Same. Seems like in the 21st century, we could find a better I way know. to get those ACE2 receptors and up there but no I had the same thing because I I was down sick but I actually ended up I tested negative for COVID then but I've been tested three times now and all three times at the same place and they do the nose swab and I where do you go I go to the um there at the entrance of Oconee Memorial Hospital so I'll call my doctor and say hey I think I was exposed or I'm feeling sick is it free Mm -hmm. okay and then he'll just put in an order for you and you go get tested but no I had much of the same experience in fact I I think I the last time I think I was dealing with trauma as I drove up because I was getting nervous Dude, and starting that's to That's PTSD, and that's no joke. Yeah, it is. It's hard stuff getting so, tested. So, all to say, we're back in the studio this week and grateful mm-hmm. to not be being tested for COVID. Yeah, and we're going to talk to about some non-controversial topics today, <laughs> um, like this new movie, Cuties, and like homosexuality and extraterrestrial life. But let's let's start with cuties. Javen, you shot this idea at me um, to talk about this. It kind of it was really trending on pretty much any social media platform. Yeah, you you are a part of um, the last, uh, especially last week. Uh, I think is is that when it came out on Netflix? I'm honestly not even sure when it came out. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited to talk about this. Um, I'm interested in film mm-hmm. and film genre. 
film review, film critique. And so this was something that I thought was really interesting because not only was I interested in it, now everybody right. <laughs> was taking up arms and, and being interested in this. And, you know, um, on social media, one of the, actually I shouldn't say one of the, pretty much the prevailing um, opinion I seen was that, like, hashtag cancel Netflix. Mm-hmm. If this site put out this horrific piece of film, it's so exploitive, so bad, mm-hmm. so oppressive that we need to just cancel Netflix, right? Have, did you see these same sorts of things? Yeah, I saw a lot of that too. And we quick, should quick say for a disclaimer at the beginning, we're going to do something that we would usually advise against, but we're going to talk like we know something about a movie we've never seen. Yeah. Um, so it's all it's all based on, it's, it's not primary knowledge of the yeah. actual content, which I don't know if we'll talk about the I, content as much. Sure. I have seen, like I've seen the trailer. We both read reviews of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I have seen a, a few scenes of the film. I do feel like this is a film that you, we can talk about without watching right. because right. it's pretty clear what's in there, right? From the yeah. outrage and and from what the film is supposedly trying to do, it's clear about what the film is doing. But then the questions are why and how, I yeah. think. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So you see people all over social media outraged because in the film, there are these very young girls, like young teens yeah. or not even teens yet, being... They dance, right? That's the yeah. thing. And yeah. they do these dances in very, very sexually provocative mm-hmm. ways, sexualizing themselves, obviously, like for the purpose of being famous, right? Getting views, right. making it. Yeah. And so then the question is, is the director trying to disturb us by showing mm-hmm. us this? Or is it a celebration or some people might even say it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter what you're trying to do. You're not allowed to cast children in these kinds of roles. Right. So one of the things that came to my mind was when you see something that deeply disturbs you in the world, but really more in film, like, I think you need to ask why it's there before you start screaming. Like, you right. need to ask why it's there. And I'm not saying you shouldn't ever scream about things, but um, what came to my mind was last semester – in a film genre class I was taking, we watched Django Unchained. Yeah. Have you seen that? No, I just know it's... I, I know I've read enough about it to know yeah. about it. So Django Unchained, um, <laughs> probably, like, that's the roughest film I've ever watched. Like, the the strongest, most R-rated yeah. film. And we watched it in a group. <laughs> so we got to experience <laughs> the horrificness together. But, like, it is so violent that it just almost makes you sick. Like, there were times I just looked away. And it's dealing with... Um, is dealing with the pre-Civil War South mm-hmm. and specifically this guy who's a slave owner and just the way that these slaves are treated. And then, I mean, there is also a hero figure who is a, a black individual who kind of comes back and exacts violence on the oppressors, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like it's an argument against slavery by showing how horrific the violence right. is. Right. That's the idea of a lot of... Um of World War II movies as well with, like, Schindler's List and, and movies like that that are portraying of the, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of it's the same idea, essentially. Because um, that's what I thought, too. Uh, it's it's the, the line of thinking. I think we've talked about it in here before, but when you portray something, like, so honestly that it's repulsive to the audience, and that's, that's the message that you're trying to get across by showing something that is completely yeah. inappropriate or violent or whatever it may be. And then I think, I mean, there's definitely an, 
a conversation to be had, even about a movie like Django Unchained, mm-hmm. about like Tarantino's use of violence is so excessive that might he be, <laughs> you know, a bit gratuitous in right. his showing of violence. Right. Like, is that part of the entertainment? Is just how awfully bloody it is. And so then, like, where's that line of he's showing it just to be excessive or he's showing it to show, you know, how bad something is, right? Yeah. And so then that's the conversation we're having with cuties. Like, how much of sexualizing children in film is done to be controversial? And, I mean, mm-hmm. let's face it, the best thing that could have possibly happened for this movie was for it to be horrifically controversial, because yeah. there are people watching this film who never would have seen it just right. because of the publicity. Right. And how much of that is done on purpose because they're trying to disturb viewers and saying, hey, there's something wrong with society when preteen girls are sexualizing mm-hmm. themselves just to become popular. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because, well, and like we, you were just saying there, because the movie that I thought of right away that I, I think is right in line with, with Cuties is a movie that came out years ago, um, but it, it, it faced some of the same kind of outrage, except it was much, much less popular because it didn't deal with children, I think. Uh, but The Wolf of Wall Street, which at the time set a record for amount of like nude scenes in a movie um, that was R-rated. And it's another movie that I... That's I will, Leonardo DiCaprio again. Yeah. Right? He's also in Django Unchained, man. Oh, really? He gets okay, because that's another movie I won't ever watch, but I I did find it interesting. Like his, the the I forget who the director was, but his point was by showing this, you know off-the-wall Wall Street mm-hmm. life. Tycoon. Yeah. Tycoon with all this uh, sexual innuendo everywhere that it was going to cast it in a negative light and make it not replicable. Re- replicable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, the great irony of that is, is like, the actress, I forget who it is, um, but she basically, for, for her, she never wanted to be that kind of actress, and she had multiple interviews afterwards about how she had to do these nude scenes that she was completely uncomfortable with and she was drinking and on drugs to try to cope with some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, 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 to me, completely was this great irony yeah. to it. So that brings up something I really want to talk about. And I was introduced to this concept through Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. Mm-hmm. But it's this idea that, well, not really idea, but investigation, what does satire do? Right. And h- how do people react to satire? So one of his classic examples is there's this band called um, Black Flag, who's like this, I don't know, like punk rock, um, like really anti-band, <laughs> right? Who yeah. plays this like super rebellious music. And the one song that they play, uh, I think, it, yeah, it's called TV Party. Okay. And the song is about, it's making a mockery of people. It's saying like, it's... Let's just sit around and have a TV party and do nothing and waste our lives. And they're singing this song, and they're like, it's supposed to be satire. Like, we're supposed to be showing you how worthless and pathetic you are. But it turns into an anthem to where people are coming to these concerts right. and, like, jumping up and down singing along. And they're totally on board with the message. Yeah. And yeah. I think eventually they stopped playing it because it was having the complete opposite effect. Um, he also points out, I forget what show it was, but it was something like like one of the late night shows. Okay. Where um, what's the guy who always does the impersonations? Uh, Kimmel. No. No. Uh, Colbert. Colbert. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was Colbert, but it was someone in that strain where he does these impersonations. Colbert's guy that he always impersonates is a Republican conservative guy. Okay. But he's saying like, when, 
when you do these kinds of things, it appeals, actually, it ends up appealing to both sides of the audience mm-hmm. because he's, he's saying these things against the left, and the left is like, yeah, that's how stupid the right is. Like, right, this is the right. light they paint us in. Yeah. And then people on the right also celebrate it because they're saying, yeah, he's saying these things in stupid, but he kind of actually means it. Yeah. And so satire ends up being this thing where the people being mocked and the other people both right. can get behind it. And it's so strange. Right. There, there's there been this, I've been wanting to do this like um, questionnaire on Facebook, or just a, like an informal thing, throwing out like what's what are like songs like that, mm-hmm. that people are, you know, they're all into and, and you can tell what they mean with how they celebrate this song is completely different than what the yeah. song is. Like yeah. for me, the classic example is Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you're toting your shotgun, Born in the USA, you know, whatever. And and the song's a, a protest song, yeah. You know, a protest anthem. And and to me, that that one's kind of the epitome of what we're talking about a little bit. Did you listen to the episode I'm talking about? No, I didn't. Okay, interesting because he brings up Born oh, in really? the USA. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I had no yeah, idea. Yeah. So going like, in what ways do you see it as a protest song? Because I'll admit, hearing that song, that's not what I thought until I heard some other perspectives on the song. Yeah. Well, in, in my mind, it's the context is the Vietnam War. Um, and it's basically a, a protest of even being there, from what I understand mm. of it. Um, so, I mean, in, in that way, it's 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 not necessarily a, like, it's more as like this, it, the way I see it celebrated more as like this hoorah song. It's a rah-rah America yeah, song. I mean, yeah. because, yeah, like, that's the song that's played on the 4th of July at the firework right, party. Right. Like, literally in Seneca. Right, and I think song. if you would actually get into it, like, I think those same people who are rah-rah, if you would get into what the song is, they would accuse you of being anti-American yeah. with some of his sentiment in there. So anyway, that that's not as, that's an interesting part of it too. But I'd be curious if there's other songs out there too that are like... Yeah, know. I think there are. Another one that was mentioned was, I'm going to get the title wrong. It's something, it's like Rednecks, White Socks, and Blue Ribbon Beer. Never heard of it. Yeah, and I think it's... <laughs> it's Maybe a bit of a satire, okay. but it's another one that people will get behind and champion. Like, this yeah. is our culture, and it's kind of poking fun at your culture. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, this really ultimately, it's it's part of a larger conversation, the modern and the postmodern. Like, how much does the authorial intent matter? How much does what they're trying to communicate matter versus how much of the reader's own interpretation matters. Like, mm-hmm. is it the text? Is it the authorial intent? Or is it the interpretation by the reader? And I think I think what we're seeing is this interpretation of the reader being right. raised higher and higher over those other two things. Because when you see a movie like Cuties, at some point people are saying it doesn't matter what the director intended. This is right. what I gleaned from the right. text. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think it's an interesting thing that's right. happening. Yeah, because the... the um, because some of the reaction I did see as well on on maybe the non-cancel Netflix side was more of like, hey, this is a celebration of um, ex- freedom of expression for women of color. Mm-hmm. You know exactly, um, they which is the same idea that after um, the halftime show this past Super Bowl, um, mm-hmm. that was the same idea. Like this is, you know, Latin American women being yeah. able to express themselves freely. That's a really good point because there's actually three perspectives on this movie. There's one that says. This is obscene, mm-hmm. and it was meant to be obscene, and we need to cancel Netflix. I think what's the more approach I tend to take is 
it's obscene, but it was in, it was intended to be obscene, and right. it's making some comments about the way that society mm-hmm. is. There's a third option that's on the right, or I'm just using my hands right. on the opposite side, that's saying, no, this isn't obscene. This is cause to be celebrated. Yeah, it's yeah. to be celebrated, and it's pushing us into a direction where we've been scared to go. Like mm-hmm. child sexuality has never been explored in the ways it needs to be explored. Right. And so, like, especially for a, women of color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a continuum of mm-hmm. just different responses to to film, and yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. Well, to kind of sum up this topic, like, what, how has your approach been to that movie? Because you haven't seen it, and as far yeah. as I know, you don't plan on seeing yeah. it. Yeah. So one thing I did, um, there was someone on Facebook who was messaging me about this movie. They actually went and seen the movie, and so I wanted to read some of their kind of critique. And I mean, I don't think there's anything that points to a film being controversial more (laughs) than the fact that this individual did not want to be named as having seen the movie. (laughs) So, uh, let's see. Um, This person comments, this movie is just a nonstop sexualizing of kids. The morality play at the end is weak and unconvincing. So, he, this person, let's see. Uh, This was I thought was the most interesting paragraph here Um, regarding the idea that this is a critique of the sexualization of minors. The most charitable view I can hold of that is that it's a post hoc justification of this film. So I think what he's saying is like after the film is made, you come up with this to justify. Mm -hmm. I've watched plenty of French films and I'm familiar with their view of sexuality. And this doesn't cut it because uh, let's see. The only reason I finished it was because I wanted to see the critique of exploitation and I I was disappointed. So in this person's perspective. Mm -hmm. Maybe the there was a move to try to say that, you know, this is trying to be making a point, but in his opinion, it was too gratuitous and it did not pay off. Right. So we need to move on. But this has been yeah. an interesting thing yeah. to talk about. Because, no, but I think that the the quote I went back to, and we'll, we'll quick finish this off, but I, I did think about, we've talked a lot about Marshall McLuhan's quote, um, the medium is the message yeah. in a lot of ways. Right. And that's what I went back to a lot with this movie. Like, I think it was a valid cry, like, I don't. I don't know. Like he was talking about, he he's in, immersed in some French film. I'm not. Yeah. I, I don't know their view of sexuality or if it was a legitimate critique or not. But perhaps it was. It, it, or at least that was the author's intention, or the, the director's intention. But for me, like the the using the means of sexualizing eleven year old girls, like you had to teach them, you had to walk them through these mm-hmm. moves, and 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 that that's that in itself, I think, sends a large message with how these girls are portrayed in this movie. To where I think. Absolutely, let's critique the culture and critique all these voices that are, or how we are society that um, that girls feel like that's what they have to do at 11 years old yeah. to, to be in society. But read a book about it or, you know, read an article or there, there's good stuff out there. To me, it just seemed like using the medium of film and how it portrayed them. Basically what you're saying is you have to recognize at the end of the day there's real people playing those characters. Right. <laughs> and to me that would just to do that to an eleven year old would just always be wrong. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. But All right. Let's let's move on. Um, let's talk about the E. T. Oh sure. <laughs> we'll throw in a fun one. Yeah, so Colin sent me this article. Yeah. And go for so, it. So so this is super fun. Um on Venus there is they have detected possibilities of extraterrestrial life. Um, so what what has been happening is there have been some group of scientists that have been searching the galaxy and studying to try to find um, a chemical footprint, um, which would basically signify that 
life somewhere. So microscopic life. And there is, let me see if I can find her name, but there's a recent study that came out, uh, the Journal of Nature Astronomy. Um, and they detailed that Venus, which is roughly 150 million miles away, and it's the closest planet to Earth. That's that's an important detail. When we talk about <laughs> extraterrestrial life, it's the extraterrestrial life. It's the closest planet to Earth, um, practically next door in astronomical terms. Um, but Clara Souza Silva, she is a molecular astrophysicist at MIT, and she has devoted most of her career to studying phosphine as a possible biosignature of far-off worlds. So she was going to look all around and, and search for this gas, phosphine. And here she found it on the next planet over. And so this was really fascinating because the way phosphine is created on Earth, um, it's, it's a biosignature that signifies um, it's basically the byproduct of microorganism activity. So you're saying you don't get this gas unless you have life? Not on Earth. So there could be a possible they, – they researched into, like, other chemical processes that could account for it, like um, volcanoes, lightning, even meteorites hitting, stuff like that. And those are all really uh, – there's nothing that really explains it. Um, on Earth, phosphine comes from microorganisms that they break down decaying plants and animals without oxygen. Um, it smells like rotting fish. But there, <laughs> right now, there is no other explanation – that we know of for phosphine gas, except for microorganism activity, which if that is the case, then that means there is microorganism activity on Venus, our next door neighbor. And so there may be life out there. This is fascinating. And it's like so far outside of my wheelhouse. I have... It's outside mine too. (laughs) No idea. (laughs) So like, I'd be interested to hear your perspective. What does this mean? Like, as Christians, do we need to be worried about what this could mean, like, theologically? So, to me, like, I really kind of like it, uh, personally, and I don't really freak out about it at all. Um, I, I think it's actually a fun thing to study, and we should keep studying, because there might be other life out there. I don't I don't think we have to think life is completely confined to Earth. And, uh, you know, if, if the Lord needed to reveal himself to some other life, some in some other planet, with uh, some other scriptures or whatever else. <laughs> and Jesus came in there. I don't know. Somehow, I'm sure he's made himself known to them. As, I, I, it doesn't pose any theological problems for me. But Do you think, I mean, what would be the implications of there being non-human, but just like vegetation, life on another planet? Right. Well, that could, well, yeah, because especially as far as we know, no, no planet is hospitable to human life. Um, and this is the first example of life in general. So, I really don't know what it means. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have neighbors that would be microorganisms. So I don't know. It'd be there'll be all kinds of interesting studies about them, and I don't know. I don't know what that means. Have we put rovers on Venus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we should be able to go check this out, or not? Yeah. Like, can we get a conclusive answer? Uh, I mean, I would. Think or would so. this be like vegetation that was there a long time ago and is not anymore? No, because this is this is an active gas in there system now and so well i mean that does bring up like how does their atmosphere preserve gas and the footprint so i don't know they'll have to trace back the footprint Hmm. and things like that so i don't know we'll see where it goes but i found it really fascinating because this is as far as i know the first real conclusive sign that there might be even microscopic life Um, because they thought that on mars for a while but but from what i've read that it was that's a no-go so far so 
Interesting. Yep. That actually reminds me of something I was listening to yesterday, which just kind of blew my mind. And it was so much that I really don't even know how to explain it. But it was, it's this podcast that I started listening to. Shoot, I'll have to put it in the show notes. I can't remember. But it was like, sometimes at the end of an, a season, um, they'll put in like a show from a different show, just like to try oh, okay. to show you like, hey, you <clears throat> might like this. And so I was listening to it. And it, it was about this... Like these beliefs, uh, kind of like stemming from India, where like they worship and pray to like these gods who are extraterrestrial, and so so it goes like Jesus and the Buddha and these other like figures that came to Earth <laughs> yeah. were extraterrestrial, like from other planets who came to us. Oh, uh, okay. And then it like has all these things to do with past lives. It's super crazy. <laughs> Really, that's really interesting. Weird. But the thing I found interesting was, man, I wish I could remember the name. I don't want to get it wrong, but it's something about like the nine white brothers or something like that. Okay. And it's like the idea is like there's like these nine figures that is like it's kind of like the nine rings in Lord of the Rings, like the gods, the nine rings kind of thing. Of but it said yeah. like the X Men are descended from this idea. Oh, okay. And um, Marvel, like the Marvel yeah, universe, yeah. where you have like these kind of like god figures. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like descended straight from this idea. So wow, that would be really something to look into more. Yeah, so who knows what will happen with this. It, it, uh, have you ever seen Apollo 18? No. Don't. It's not <laughs> worth your time. But that's kind of, they get to, uh, I forget what planet they're going to, but it's like this, oh, it's a really depressing film, and it's really not worth watching. <laughs> I, I really felt like I wasted my time after oh. watching it. But basically, uh, there's like this hostile life, but it's like these little blobs. So, but they're hostile. But they're hostile. So they like will sneak inside your astronaut suit and kill you. That sounds awful. So it's pretty devious. But All right. So anyway, the next, uh, let's see. It's moving on. A few minutes left. I wanted to talk a little bit about homosexuality. Not just because I woke up on a Thursday and that was on my mind, but because <laughs> I'm taking this class called Critical Issues mm-hmm. with Dr. Venna. And um, we're working through this book called Homosexuality, the Bible and the Church which is going to present four views on sexuality, or homosexuality, rather. Then we're going to move to the historical Adam and then to gender roles. And I think each of the three books are put out by Zondervan. And what they do is basically they take two authors who have one side, two authors who present mm-hmm. the other side, and then, you know, you get all four views and you get everybody's rebuttal to the views. And, right. you know, it's, yeah, it's a pretty cool format. Yeah. Have you read any of those books or seen them? Uh, I actually have one right now for my theology class, but it's like a condensed version um, mm-hmm. Like it has like maybe 10 theological issues and then it has um, it's two authors that would not be opposing across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And he just maps out the different positions. Yeah. But I did do a project in a hermeneutics class where we were just looking at all the different all the different issues that these like the four issues, sure. the, the four views books. But anyway, yeah. Before we really get into this, because I want to talk about the one view that's presented mm-hmm. and just and see what your opinions are and just talk about it. But, you know, I think this is something that's been so valuable for me. And I feel like it's it's taken to my junior and maybe even senior year of college, but to just start to be able to put your own beliefs in perspective. Because mm-hmm. I feel like when you grow up, at least in my experience, when you grow up in the church, you're taught, right, like air quotes, truth. Mm-hmm. But you don't realize until a lot later that pretty much everything you're taught is a perspective in a landscape. And like locating yourself 
or your tradition in the landscape is so important if you're ever going to have anything meaningful to say to anyone who's not a part of your community. Yeah, I was thinking about this morning, like the difference, like when you're growing up, you've, I just think of it as far as like your, your spectrum increases incrementally mm-hmm. or, or, or exponentially I mean yeah um, like you have this limited spectrum that you start out in but there's some variance in it but it's yeah like, and it's like we're right here in the middle <laughs> yeah it, yeah it provides a very limited view right and then it, it once you to have something valuable to say to a wider society like your spectrum has to grow incredibly and you locate your spectrum within this big spectrum of this conversation yeah that's happening. I, I don't think that it wouldn't I mean just uh, I don't know, for the sake of argument, you would never have to change your views to have anything mm-hmm. meaningful to say. Like, you could stay rooted right where you were, but you have to understand that there's a landscape and a right. spectrum, and you fit somewhere there, right. and that it's not the only valid interpretation of the Scriptures. And that's one thing I really appreciate about these um, arguments as they address each other and then rebut each other and write a rejoinder mm-hmm. at the end. Like, they acknowledge that they are all doing the best they can they're all faithful readers of Scripture, mm-hmm. and they, they really disagree strongly mm-hmm. about where they come out, but they recognize that their view is not the only one and the only faithful one, mm-hmm. and that Christianity looks messy. Right. 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 So, do you, did you have something else? No. No. So, why don't you, you're in the part that would be, uh, you're in the affirming view right Yeah, now. so the first two we read are the affirming, and then, the second and the, and then we read the rebuttals, yeah. and then we read the second two. So, the, the one I wanted to talk about was, um, William Loder, and I should have brought the book in the studio, but it's out there on the table, so I'll just do the best I can. But mm-hmm. basically, you know, a lot of times when you hear people arguing for an affirming view of homosexuality, and I, by that I don't mean that um, having homosexual feelings is wrong. Like I mean, actually arguing for the union of homosexual people in the church, so like they can get married. Sexual activity between same sexes. Yeah. Okay. Usually when you hear people arguing for that, you hear them trying to take Romans or Timothy or something mm-hmm. that Paul wrote, trying to go back to the Greek and reread it in a way mm-hmm. that this doesn't say what it looks yeah. like it says. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Like that would be a lot of, um, I can't even think of his name right off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, because for me, the, the, the there's basically three camps from what, how I understand it. There's a more, what we'd probably call traditional orthodox, um, which is... Which there's, I don't know, there's enough spectrum there, I hesitate. To, but it's basically sexual activity between two sexes is it's always sin. wrong. Yeah. yeah, it's sin. Um, and then the one, and then the other view is that, no, what Paul meant was more of an exploitative, like, power, mm-hmm. um, like the, the, the powerful exploiting on the powerless um, same sex. And he wasn't prohibiting, like, a monogamous, loving, faithful, committed faithful relationship. Second sex union. Because, and then, yeah. like, let's just start to point out, in... That culture, they did weird stuff. There's weird stuff. Like, yeah. men always married younger women, and then when they had slaves, like, it was totally okay mm-hmm. for a man to rape his male slaves. Like, that's just what you did. Yeah. And I was even reading, like, it was almost viewed as, uh, I don't really know what the word, but, like, more exciting because it was harder to get. Right. right? Like, it was, it, I mean, you can have sex with, like, your wife, and she's way younger, and, like, that's no problem. But, like, to have sex with someone who's another male is harder to get. I mean, it's weird stuff. But That's they also weird. have these, like, kind of weird to us views of, like, maleness and femaleness, and it's on a spectrum. So, like, manly men never let themselves 
be raped, essentially, right? Okay, yeah. And so yeah. if you find, like, these people who are eunuchs or slaves, they're viewed as more feminine just because mm-hmm. they're not as strong and powerful, basically. And so it's okay to have sex with these kind of people because mm, they're more female. Right. <laughs> it's, it's very different than we would see things today. Yeah. So anyway, that the, was the second camp. Right, you know, but then the third camp is it's it's kind of this a different approach to the Bible entirely, which is saying, like, yeah, Paul absolutely condemns homosexual activity mm-hmm. uh, between even if it's monogamous, it doesn't matter. It's it's Paul condemns it, but we know better now. Like Paul was setting a trajectory, mm-hmm. and now in part of realizing that trajectory, we can now affirm. So, yeah, that's exactly right. And so then that's actually Loder's position is the third option okay. that you mentioned there. So what I really appreciated about his perspective is that. It actually aligns pretty closely with, like, the church I was raised in, the reading of Scripture. He says, absolutely, Paul condemns homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And what I actually was surprised by was he says Paul not only condemns the homosexual act of having sex, he also condemns the orientation. Really? So he says that, Loder says, Paul is saying, if you have those feelings, you have a twisted view of God, and it's given you over to a depraved mind which has manifested in you these feelings which are quote-unquote unnatural. So, attraction. Essentially. So, attraction. If you're, if you're a male, attracted to males. Yeah, that's unnatural and sinful. sinful. It's sinful to have those desires. Okay. It's obviously sinful to act on those desires. Okay. And so, Loder is saying that's what Paul is saying. And because of where he goes later, he really has no problem with, like because of his view of Scripture, he doesn't have a problem accepting that. He doesn't. He doesn't have to do any of these acrobatics to say, well, yeah. maybe let's look at the Greek, and maybe Paul wasn't actually saying that. Because that's the part, like, that to me seems to be the only two legitimate sides of the argument. Like, the, the, the one where it's, it's, it's severe acrobatics to try to be like, well, we think he just meant this exploitive. Based on my understanding of what I have, I haven't dug in, I haven't dug in, I've read the book, haven't dug in that much. But from my understanding, like, there was absolutely sexual, monogamous, same-sex marriages in ancient Roman culture, Paul like, knew about them. Okay. And so the fact that he condemns in a lot of his writings or condemns homosexuality, in his mind, he understands that there's monogamous committed same-sex relationships. So Interesting. I so, don't know. That's, that, I, yeah. I haven't done just a ton of study. Yeah, so that's I, where it makes like the, the first and the third view are the two more competing ones that at least in how they approach the issue seem more legitimate to me. And I hope that we're able to talk about this more as I read further right. into the book. We're today in class we're gonna be discussing the second view, which is Megan DeFranza. And she she actually she is an affirming of same sex marriage, but she does so from a place that she actually thinks Paul can be read in a way okay. that doesn't condemn it. And like we were just talking about that argument, which I've in the past thought is pretty weak. I don't know, she makes she makes what I think okay. is a pretty decent argument for it, and I'd like to get into that maybe next week. But, yeah, so, I mean, it really comes down then to what do we think of Scripture as? Right. And one thing that I thought was really interesting that Loder mentions is that, you know, we we can be faithful to Scripture and move beyond it. And this is a very debated point. Right. But what I think is interesting is he points to other places where he, where we, he claims that we've already done this. And so he talks about, like... I'm trying to remember, but like uh, one that would definitely come up is like the head veiling and women. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are definitely 
um, communities where that is practiced. But mm -hmm. by and large, we don't take Paul seriously when we say when he's telling people to wear head veilings because we've moved beyond that or right. something. I mean, there is definitely communities who practice that teaching right. faithfully. I'm trying to think of others. Um, I wish I'd have brought that book in here. I mean, even things like uh, the Holy Kiss. Yeah. When you or, meet with each other, give each other, greet each other yeah. with a kiss. Greet each other with the Holy Kiss. Again, yeah. people still do that. Some, yep, some <laughs> people do, and it's very but awkward going to the Another churches. one is slavery. Like, Paul right. never comes right. out and condemns slavery, but the church has has condemned slavery. Like, we've right. we've applied a biblical ethic to move beyond what Paul has written to mm -hmm. us because we say we understand the world now more completely than Paul did. I yeah. mean, is that fair? Yeah, well, that and, well, that and, and like, um, the way I've heard it, talked about a lot is Paul was subverting cultural norms from the inside out. So for slavery, what he does is he declares um, he declares slaves as brothers in Christ to their masters. And that trajectory will make to where could you lead to the overthrow will lead you to eventually get to the place where yeah. you say, well, as my brother in Christ, I could never own you, um, which this was before chattel slavery too. So it a different kind of slavery, yeah. but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I mean, it's like as a as a 21st century Christian, you would like to see Paul <laughs> right against the structure of not slavery. Have slavery. Yeah. yeah. And then even um, you know, things like the way we understand marriage. Like that when when Paul writes things about women in the church, right? Like we don't really we don't try to take those things seriously by and large anymore. Like he tells the women at least in a some certain context, like you need to be silent in the church. He doesn't seem to be arguing for a very egalitarian perspective at all. Like men are clearly the head of women and are more powerful in the mm -hmm. relationship where a lot of people today would see would see them as equals in the partnership. Mm -hmm. So what Loder is basically arguing is there are a lot of ways which we have to realize we have moved beyond what Paul was teaching. And he's saying, why can't we do that with sexuality as well? Okay. So that's that's... That's his argument. Yeah, too. that's okay. the best I can summarize it. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we probably don't have too much time to go into it in much detail anymore. But um, we'll have to keep bringing this. Maybe we can talk about it some more in podcasts coming down the road, like yeah. other views. Um, but essentially his argument that would be like, in ways we've moved beyond Paul's writings, if you have a consistent interpretive ethic for that, the natural implication of that is to move to his position on homosexuality. Yeah. And I think, I think his position would be like if Paul were writing today. He would, I mean, the world is not the same as it was then. Like mm -hmm. he would have, <coughs> excuse me, a completely different baseline that he's working from. Right. Things just aren't the same. That's what he's saying. Okay. And so yeah, I mean, for me, it's definitely. I was telling you before we started, but what I really want to do is write, um, on my website and try to summarize well each of the four views. Because then at the end of the day, or at the end of the class, we have to put our position forward and defend it. And like, right. just to be honest, I, I don't actually know what I believe about this. So it's going to be, and even the professor said, he's like, at the end, you have to take a position, even if you don't you, still know what you right. believe. Yeah. But um, I think it's helpful just like being, having to do serious reading of people who have really different perspectives and understand right. that there are people who are trying to be faithful to scripture who don't arrive where you arrive. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I haven't read a book on that. I've listened to several like extensive conversations uh, between lots of different people within those three views that we are outlining. 
about it. And that's like, it's been really helpful to see how, I don't know. I, I think the way these conversations can get shut down really quick is, is unfortunate or quickly turned into name calling is really unfortunate. Um, especially given even the nature of the subject as well. So I don't know, we could talk more about that at a later time, but I would just say like they're, they're conversations worth having. They anyway. are. And they're like, they're not just abstract, right? Like, there are people, right. I'm not one of these people, but there, you know, there are people whom where you come out on this and how your church comes out on this, like it really matters. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, these are really people who really do experience these kinds of things. And right. it's an orientation that people, I well, mean, I, I don't think they choose it, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's a real thing. Yeah. And, and that, if I understood you right, the four people who are authors in this book would all be same sex attracted. Is that right? Uh, I don't not. know. Actually, okay. I don't know. Okay. Probably. I know. Well, I'm not sure. You mentioned Wesley Hill. I know he is. Yeah, Wesley Hill. He would be on the traditional so. spectrum. But maybe they are. Okay. okay. I could look into that. Yeah. I've found that fascinating from different people who are... Um, the one one debate I listened to was between two um, self-proclaimed evangelical Christians. One was celibate and one was gay living with another man. Okay. Well, was, it, um, was it Wesley Hill? No. It okay. wasn't Wesley Hill. Uh, I can't pull the name off the top of okay. my head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, because I mean, obvi- yeah, that's that's interesting. You you have people who have that orientation as voices for a more traditional view because they've right. said, I'm going to live my life celibate yeah. because of the way that I interpret scripture. Well, that's, I mean, I mean, that's, we, yeah, we had Christopher really Yuan on earlier and he, that's, that's where he's, I mean, he's yeah. celibate um, because of that. But that's where it's for me, like, that's why these conversations are worth having because like, it's going to make a difference for how someone's going to live their their life as an adult or how they're going to approach family and, and things like that to where, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's important not to just go with, I, I you can, you, there's always that the one liner that someone throws out that just kind of shuts down the conversation yeah. and doesn't seem to really help those people that are in the depths of trying to wrestle through this as a reality for them and how they engage with the church and other people even. Yes. I'm going to run out and grab the book. Cause there's a paragraph I really want to read. BRB. BRB. We can just cut this out. Uh, It's about time to go. All right, you got class in a second. Okay, so I wanted to read. I just went out and grabbed the book. I wanted to read this. um, This is Megan DeFranza writing. But she's talking about just kind of the nature of this debate, Mm -hmm. as we were saying. She was saying... Things have changed as we begin to recognize our common ground. Still, fences remain. Mennonites may attendly, she mentioned us Mennonites, may occasionally attend churches that support a just war, but they will not make their home in a congregation which they believe tolerates and even honors violations of the Sixth Commandment. Um, she says Baptists may visit Presbyterians, but they will not settle down in a church that baptizes those who have not reached the age of accountability. Despite our common ground, these fences still divide us. But then I really like this paragraph. He said, yet some of our fences have worn down over the years. Protestants no longer drown one another over different baptismal practices as they did in the 16th century. 
Christians have stopped using the Bible to defend slavery. Some of the painful splinters on these rough beams have worn smooth. Other beams have fallen and not been replaced. In a few spots, the only foundation stones remain. Memorials of past sins, warning of the ways in which we can injure one another and the gospel as we differ, differ on how to faithfully follow Jesus, the Bible, and our consciousness. So, yeah, I mean, we, we do move on these things, and we get better at talking about these things. Yeah, that's For probably sure. good. For sure. So hopefully we'll get better at talking as we keep. This would be a good one to keep up with as yeah. we, we can keep throwing it as a topic as we go. Six minutes till class. Thank you guys for joining mm-hmm. us for episode two of this season. We'll see you again next week. That's and right. And provided we don't get COVID. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, you've had it so probably won't. But <laughs> maybe I'll get it. <laughs> anyway, until next week, have a good one. Take care, you guys.